Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Kevin Canale here with my co-host, Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? Doing great. I'm glad to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. We are well into the swing of things in the 2018 legislative session. And today we are going to talk about the highly anticipated report from the Maryland Comptroller on how federal tax reform will affect Marylanders. Also today, the governor outlined his proposal to ensure that federal tax changes will not have a negative effect on Marylanders. We'll talk about that. We'll also discuss some interesting news on the sick leave bill. We've talked about that in previous episodes, and it's a hot topic around Annapolis. Then we'll dive one level deeper for the fiscal plan for the year ahead, talk about some of the hot-button issues that we're seeing bubbling up. And finally, we'll provide a brief recap of our legislative reception, which we held last night in Annapolis, which was a fantastic event. Yeah, sounds good. So, Michael, let's start with the Comptroller's report today. Again, this was highly anticipated. Folks from all across the state watching this very closely. I know you and I were watching. What were some highlights for you? What do you want to point out for us on the podcast? Well, I, I, would, I would say the first thing is I've got a copy of the report that the, the Board of Revenue Estimates has put together on this. This is probably the most complicated fiscal estimate that Maryland's ever had to do. And the the reason it's so tricky is the staff and the controller's office, they're pulling together data from actual tax returns. You have to make some assumptions about, well, this is what people had on their returns in 2014 or 2015. You have to look at, at, at real past returns. Then you have to make some guesses about you know, what's she going to do under the new laws if they're applied to a return that has these same dimensions? And that's going to be complicated. We've we've had some conversations about this on previous versions of this podcast and, and with our county leaders, but this is going to be tricky. Some people are going to maybe take the most advantageous tax decision on their federal return, and then that turns into a negative tax consequence on their state return. Right. And I think the comptroller even mentioned that today. It wasn't like they were just taking 100,000 tax returns and putting it in the computer and making guesses. They were literally taking millions of returns and trying to make those estimates. Right. And so you, you have to you have to exercise some real judgment as to what percent of people are going to elect to use a standard deduction. That's a really big part of this. We think an awful lot of federal filers will go from being itemized returns to taking the simple standard deduction and no longer you know, the receipts for charitable contributions and other things like that. Um, and if that's the case, that's got a big carryover effect on the state. So one of the big questions that everyone around town has had is what is the big number, right? We've heard estimates as high as a billion, and then I've heard 250, 350 million. What did you hear today and take away from you know the final number and what they expect it to be for Maryland? Right. So, so the the effect for this year at the state level is plus 400 million, give or take. And that's, I mean, that's a ballpark figure. Um, and everybody knows we're working with the best estimates we can. So to say it's 378.2 is a little specious to, you know, to pretend that we know it to a, to some sort of a decimal. Um, if you're looking at basically more income being taxable for Marylanders because of the decisions that have happened at the federal level and define taxable income on the federal income tax form. So so that's where you start. 
and it's a peculiar circumstance to have have the state of Maryland looking at a windfall of tax revenue, what's effectively a tax increase on Maryland taxpayers. Yeah, especially in an election year. I mean, we've <laughs> talked about that on this podcast before. That's probably the last thing anybody wants to see, at least elected officials. So what are some ways that we can mitigate these circumstances? We've heard a lot of ideas. We've talked about some of the ideas um, you know, ways that Maryland can get ahead of this and make sure that that doesn't happen. All right. So there, there are going to be a, a variety of proposals. We've already seen individual bills introduced. I don't think we've seen the end of those. And it sounds like it'll end up being a negotiation. But th- there are a few things that make a certain amount of sense right off the top. I don't think there's a silver bullet in this list. But one piece could be, we've seen legislation introduced already to say, let's no longer piggyback on your state decision whether to itemize deductions. So even if you decide that, if, if you, even if you decide that on your federal form, you no longer want to itemize, you want to take the, the standard deduction. It's just become more, um, much more generous. They, they basically double the standard deduction. A lot of people will say that's the simpler and smarter thing to do. But under current law, we don't let you itemize state if you didn't itemize federal. We could change that law. Right. So, and actually, that's part of what the governor um, released today as part of his proposal. But decoupling the the state from federal government in terms of you know itemized deductions is complicated. And right now, we rely on the IRS right to be the auditor and to check all of these deductions. But if we decouple from the federal government, we lose the IRS in that regard, right? Sure. So that's. That's that would be uh, new territory mm-hmm. for for Maryland. That we're we're like most states. Our income tax we use the we use the federal form as the bedrock. And one of the advantages of that is you don't have to have state enforcement of all the federal itemized deductions. And you can you can imagine the whole list of things. That, I mean the I mean the whole premise of American income taxes is self-reporting with a backstop of enforcement. Right. So, you know, you, we most, most people who earn wages and so forth have withholding and things of that nature. But when you fill out your own form or you work with a tax preparer to fill out your form, you calculate all the stuff, you fill out your form, you send in your check or you ask for your refund based on your own calculations. And when you say, this was a business expense, or when you say this is a charitable contribution, here's my receipt or here's my documentation, uh, you self-report those things. And it's up to, at the moment, it's up to the Federal Internal Revenue Service to judge those those issues. And the, and the federal, the IRS, they have software that can, can automatically look at these returns and see if things are significantly different from last year's return that you filed and flag um, you know, certain certain right. items. Right. But the state doesn't necessarily have that sophisticated software, and we've relied on the IRS. So as you said, this could be a very difficult idea. And I'm sure, as we mentioned earlier, there are going to be a variety of proposals. And this will, whatever happens, will be a combination of different proposals. And the governor today said that he is uh, sending a negotiation team to work with leaders in the General Assembly to work all of this out and so that they can work together to provide a solution for Maryland. So so if 
if just allowing state-level itemization proves too difficult mm-hmm. or administratively cumbersome or whatever, I mean, the idea of the state having to judge whether that's a legitimate business expense, if that's too, uh, too, too jagged a pill, what do you look at? So, I mean, some of the obvious things are we you could look at the state standard deduction. Mm-hmm. This was a big facet of federal tax reform was to make the standard deduction, a block of your income that's untaxable without having to provide any, any receipts or any justification. Just the, the, the working idea there is everybody has some medical expenses and everybody has a variety of things that, that you wouldn't want to tax that income. So – in, in the state of Maryland, uh, it's it's a variable number, but it only goes up to four thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So that's a much smaller number. That's that's basically why we're in this pickle. Is is, is someone who has say you know, fifteen thousand dollars of itemizable um, deductions is going to take the twenty four thousand for for a, a joint file on the federal because that's right. more generous. But then they'll be stuck with only four thousand on their state. So maybe you make the four thousand dollars more generous. So you increase the state standard deduction to to sort of try and mitigate the effects of the federal tax reform. So so that's certainly one way to go. Mm-hmm. The, the thing is that doesn't necessarily target the tax relief to the people who are the losers under the federal transition. Right. So not only do you end up giving – you know, if, if you've got a variety of, of Marylanders and some of them are caught in this trap of they used to itemize, now they don't. Now they have more taxable income and their tax bill in Maryland goes up. They're the ones who are really caught in the trap. But if you give everybody a more generous – Standard deduction in Maryland, you, you move that from four thousand to ten thousand mm-hmm. or fifteen or mm-hmm. something like that. You're helping them, but you're helping everybody else as well. So you end up with uh, inadvertently, maybe you end up with winners and losers. That becomes a bundle of tax breaks for virtually everybody. Right, and that's not necessarily what you want to happen. I mean, so, it, it's going to be a political. It's that's a political decision that's more complicated than we're going to flip the switch and solve the problem. And in a, an election year, the last thing anyone wants to talk about most of the time is taxes. <laughs> and so, obviously, th- a lot of this will will be based on political decisions. We hear a lot of people saying, "Well, why doesn't the state just lower taxes?" I mean, that will solve the problem, but that's complicated too. Right, and and. There are there are a variety of different. We we're, we're talking through two options, mm-hmm. but in in the space of the next few weeks, there's going to be 32 options. Right. This is gonna this is gonna explode into a variety of ways to do things. And you know, this idea of a of a more generous standard deduction uh, is is sort of a something for everybody. Uh, and that okay, that's got a progressive element. We mm-hmm. talk about progressivity and regressivity of taxes. That ends up being more or less the same number of dollars to all filers or at least filers who don't itemize any longer. Um, okay, that's one way to go. What about another group of people who got hit in particularly Marylanders who got hit by the limit on how you can deduct state and local taxes? Uh, with the new federal cap of $10,000, there are going to be a fair number of Marylanders who have a property tax bill that they'll lose the ability to write off some of that on their state taxes. Right. Um, do, does Maryland need to come to their rescue? This is going to be a different income strata than than the folks who are making thirty and forty grand and and might not even own property. Right. But but someone who's got uh, who's relatively property wealthy. Um, independent of whether they're income wealthy, but if you've got a lot of property, that might be a big write-off for you. Right. And 
does Maryland need to make those people whole? Again, you're 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 into questions of progressivity, regressivity, and you know, you know, different different income strata of taxpayers. That makes this tricky stuff. Yeah. So the comptroller's analysis um, said that this would result in a net of two point seven five billion dollars in federal tax cuts to Marylanders. But around 376000 would owe the IRS to the tune of an additional $782 million, and that's assuming taxpayers seek the, to minimize federal tax. But 72% of Marylanders would see a $3.54 billion federal tax cut. Anything else that you found interesting today from the comptroller's analysis of, of how this would affect Maryland? I think I, I think the the comptroller staff did a superb job trying to take this multiple levels deep because one thing you need to think about is people who end up with an income tax cut you, nominally these are people now who have more disposable income available and so sometimes that mean that means they go out and buy a refrigerator or mm-hmm. they buy an automobile or they play games at a casino or they have a restaurant meal or things of that nature and some of those have a second tier tax effect on the state as well uh, it's tough to know how much of that gets recognized you know immediately in consumer behavior uh, but that's you know that's an interesting part of this too the the obvious piece for Maryland policymakers is to focus on the tax system mm-hmm. uh, what this means for the economy is a tough call too we've seen you know we've seen judgment calls about whether this tax incentive is going to amount to a whole lot different in difference in, in, in economic growth overall. But it probably does mean a little more money in people's pockets, especially a month or so from now when withholding tables gets changed get changed. So there's something to that. Sure. And um, I mean at least in the in the in the next few years and then things do get a little complicated in the out years, but that's for another another episode of the podcast maybe. Right. Um, so on the income tax issue, the Big, the big spotlight is on the $400 million figure, which is the state effect. Mm-hmm. But we can't lose sight, and this is the MAKO podcast, so we can't lose sight that there's also a county effect as well. Yes. Because almost all of what is affecting the state is a function of what's defined as taxable income. Right. And on your state form, one of the last things you fill out is a number that basically you take your taxable income times your county income tax rate to generate a component of taxes you pay pay to your county. Maryland Maryland is the most income tax beholden state in the country for its county governments. Um, we use income tax to try and make our tax system more progressive than you would have if we were all property like lots of states or more sales tax like lots of states. So this is this is the, the lot we've got, which means we're along for this ride. And we've said before, whatever happens at the federal level won't just affect the state. It'll affect counties as well, local governments as well. So as you said, we're along for the ride. What are we seeing in terms of how this will trickle down to local governments since we are so attached you know, to the state income tax and, and how that all flows through? Um, the comptroller talked about that a bit today. What did you hear that, that we can share with our listeners? Well, the, the, the big split from for county stakeholders is among the different options that will be sitting in Annapolis for how to change state tax structures, the things we've been talking about, um, changing the standard deduction or allowing state-only itemization, or maybe you even change the personal exemption amounts or other things like that. But all those effectively change how much is how much of someone's 
income is taxable. All those things flow down to the counties. So if you if you do any of those things to make state tax cuts by making less income taxable, that means the counties will have less of their income taxable and it'll draw down county revenues. Alternatively, we've already seen legislation to draw down to, to reduce the the state income tax rates in mm-hmm. one way or another. Mm-hmm. So that's another way to skin the cat that gets at income at all levels and that has a certain attractiveness instead of just being this group of citizens or that group of citizens at this level. Um, you could say let's move all the tax rates down. If the state just changes its tax rates, that doesn't have an effect on the counties right. and you would end up with the counties still applying their current rates at a broadened income base, and that would be county revenue. Right. So certainly a lot of uh, a lot of balls in the air here, a lot in play, a lot of different options on the table. As you said, we've already seen some legislation introduced, but I think we both believe that whatever happens here, it's going to be some sort of Frankenstein uh, structure that, that we can come up with to sort of alleviate the challenges that we'll see from the federal tax reform. And I, and I think, uh, like it or not, this is the middle ring of the circus this year. Yep, a lot to come. Let's talk about uh, the sick leave bill now. And uh, we had an interesting development yesterday. So obviously, we're talking about sick leave. This was House Bill 1 passed last year. The governor vetoed the bill. And uh, the General Assembly came back this year and overrode that veto. This requires employers in Maryland, including counties, to provide uh, sick leave for employees. Uh, 15 or more employees, you provide paid, 15 or less unpaid leave. So the sponsor of that bill last year and the floor leader, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Mac Middleton, introduced a bill that would delay the implementation of the bill for 60 days. And I think everyone could agree that's probably a good idea, right, to give folks time to prepare, including local governments. So the, the reason we're in this timing pinch is, is sort of a function of the veto and veto override process. Right. So this this bill was passed in back in April of 2017. So last session in the waning days, the bill got passed and put on the governor's desk. Governor had some time to decide what he wanted to do. He elected to veto the bill. That gives the General Assembly time to either they could have come back sometime over over the last calendar year and had a special session. They opted to just wait until January. They overrode the governor's veto in the first few days of this session. But under Maryland Constitution, uh, that means the bill takes effect in 30 days following the veto override. Right. That's, so yeah, we usually have a longer lead time. Usually, legislation is passed in March and April. It's signed into law in May, and then you usually wait until July one or October one, or even the f- subsequent, t- you know, some other time uh, for things to take effect. This one suddenly it's a 30 second clock, right. 30 day clock. So so the bill is set to take effect on February 11th. Senator Middleton, you know, he said that he heard from small businesses and constituents that they needed more time. And so he introduced this bill to delay the implementation for 60 days, um, delay it till April. So uh, we saw this bill come in and this bill was fast tracked, right? I mean, he's the chairman. The bill was up for a hearing yesterday. He had just introduced it Tuesday night. Uh, We got it up to our legislative committee. We voted to support the bill because counties are unique in the fact that when we start to change personnel policies, we have to run that up the flagpole. We have to provide opportunities for public input. That's done through public hearings, which can take time. So for 60 days, 
for counties, that's a great thing, right? We needed that time. We've heard from some of our folks who are very concerned about implementation on this bill. So we support the bill. I went and testified on that bill, and you would be surprised, most folks would be surprised, that there were only two two folks in favor of the bill, myself and one other gentleman. Most of the, the people who were there to testify were in support but with amendments. So the, the presence of amendments is important here. And what's, what's really interesting about this, this is sort of an exercise in how what seems like a consensus idea cannot be an easy thing to do. And that, that looks how this tees up now. Um, and actually, you know, Chairman Middleton, sponsor of this bill, and he's chair of the committee. He's he's totally hip deep in this issue sure. after having defended this bill on the floor and then defended the defended the the, the veto override just last week. Mm-hmm. Um, when he talked about this bill, he was saying, I, "I wanted to just open the door a crack for something we all should be able to agree on." Yep. But uh, what did, what did you hear at that bill hearing? So the first thing he said was that, and then he said. The reason why the House might not introduce this bill is because we have so many people here signed up today with amendments, and they're trying to pry open this bill and relitigate all of these issues that not only last year they talked about. This has been a multi-year process. And so, you know, Chairman Middleton made it very clear all he wanted to do was extend this for 60 days. He didn't want to relitigate all these issues, but because so many people came and testified and were asking to relitigate Chairman Middleton said he is concerned that the House may not even take up this bill because they're concerned the same thing will happen in the House. So what we mean by all these other issues, and, and you've been working on this 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 subject for a couple of years now, um, all sorts of stakeholders, various employers and uh, you know, groups representing certain classes of employees. Um, there's lots of different extra conditions. You know, what about seasonal employees? What right. about agricultural employees? What about substitute teachers? What about people who have just this kind of a contract work? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these things were sorted through. A lot of amendments were taken on the bill, but a number of things didn't make it into the bill. If you're a stakeholder in this process and you feel frustrated that your amendment did, didn't get on the bill, you're kind of excited because now that we're going to talk about this issue again, let's saddle up and bring our same amendments yep. in and, and say, well, while you're fixing that, please fix my pet issue too. Yeah, you, you open up Pandora's box here. And, and that Senator Middleton, he did say uh, during the on the floor during the veto override that he would be open to doing this and trying to help folks transition because, as you said, normally there's more time. He tried to do that. But, you know, a lot of those same issues that we've talked about for years and that various stakeholders have tried to bring up, they were there again yesterday bringing up these issues. And I think it's very uncomfortable um, for Senator Middleton to, to have to hear all this and reopen, you know, this box. And we'll see what happens in the House. But if what we saw yesterday is any indication, it seems like they may be reluctant to bring the bill up. Yeah, it's it's, it's an interesting takeaway because page one is everybody agrees this small change would be a good idea. Absolutely. Let's, let's not start enforcing this in 30 days. Let's give the State Department a little leeway and then you know we'll start, a, we'll, we'll start the clock running sure. on accumulating time, mm-hmm. but let's not go crack any knuckles right away. Let's, let's get folks you know, on, on board. So if you, if you poll the entire state legislature, uh, who's going to be against that? Har- hardly anybody, I would think. Yeah, and it's an emergency uh, bill, so you, know, you would need to get 
three quarters right. to, to pass the bill. And I think they'd easily get that, as you said. Yeah. So so it's not a matter of this element being popular or being a good idea. It's a question of if you put it on the floor, do you end up having day after day and hour after hour of debate of all the issues that have already been rehearsed? We've already been talked about them. And you, you force legislators in all candor in an election year to stand up again and in some cases take take difficult votes. We, we held the line on A and mm-hmm. B and C and D. We, you know, we, we made a deal on this part and we, we, we decided not to do four months. We're only doing three months or things of that nature. Um, that's that makes it tough. So you might like the small bill. You may be afraid of the big, long, arduous process that it could turn into. So where are you? Yeah, it's a fascinating example of how a consensus type bill can be, you know, mucked up when the political process gets a hold of it. After the break, we are going to get into Mako's presentation to the Senate Budget and Taxation Committee. We're going to take a deeper dive into the fiscal plan for the year ahead, talk about some of the hot button issues, and then, of course, we'll recap our legislative session. All of that and more after the break. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Now we're going to get into some budgetary discussion. And Michael, MAKO leadership was in front of the Budget and Taxation Committee yesterday discussing our priorities. That discussion quickly morphed into discussing budgetary issues. Uh, Sure. And and no surprise, uh, the Senate Budget and Taxation Committee actually like has the intersection of both the spending side, they actually pass the budget, they hear agency budgets and so forth. So the whole governor's fiscal plan is before this committee in the Senate. They also are the tax and revenue side as, as well. Those those responsibilities are split in the House of Delegates, but they're they're together in the Senate. So really the whole plan is in B&T. Um, that, it's, it's a good opportunity early in session for county leaders and municipal leaders to sit before that committee, lay out what the top of our agenda looks like. And it's informally, it's a quick react for us on what we've seen in the governor's budget and what, you know, what we think would affect county services. So we're there, we're talking about MAKO priorities, highway user revenues, um, our other legislative initiatives. But earlier in the day, Victoria Gruber uh, from DLS, Department of Legislative Services, came to MAKO and gave our legislative leadership and our legislative committee an update on the state's fiscal outlook and what she saw in the budget. And I think that really set the stage. It was it was really good timing for our leaders, the county leaders, to hear that presentation because later on in the day, when you're in front of the budget and taxation committee, you really start to take a deeper dive into some of the issues she talked about and discuss that and those issues with the budget and taxation committee. 
Sure. That, that the timing was perfect. Uh, it was an ideal setup for our elected leaders to hear that. And we, and we appreciate that outreach. Mm-hmm. Um, the Department of Legislative Services has done this for years. Uh, this is the week of the fiscal briefing. On, on Monday of this week was the first presentation by legislative services. This is the professional staff to uh, to the General Assembly. And they, they make one big presentation to the budget committees. And then over the course of this week, they have been doing sort of abbreviated versions of the fiscal issues to all the policy committees through the legislature. So um, for them to include a stop at MAKO, they trudge down here, talk through the the state's fiscal picture, talk about local aid and pension system and all that sort of stuff with county leaders. It's a really welcome thing for us. It gives us a good sense of perspective. And and having Vicki Gruber join us uh, yesterday, it was it was a perfect fit. Uh, she's she's new in her role as the director of legislative services, but it's not she didn't just fall off the turnip truck. She's really well known, mm-hmm. super well respected in Annapolis. Um, and she she showed everybody at Mako, I think, why you know she's landed in this job and, and is going to be a really good fit. She 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 laid things out really really clearly. Yeah. Yeah, you certainly would not know if she was new in her role. She did a fantastic job briefing our leaders on on what she is seeing and, and what DLS is analyzing in terms of budgetary issues. So, Michael, we said that this uh, conversation in front of budget and taxation morphed into some of these deeper budgetary issues that um, Vicki talked about earlier in the day. What were some of the highlights from your perspective? You were at the table mm-hmm. with our county leadership. Uh, what, what did you want to convey and what did that conversation entail? Well, we, we got into a few things before the Budget and Tax Committee. And, and as you mentioned, no surprise, our, our elected leaders, we had you know, Jerry Walker, who's a member of the Anne Arundel County Council, William Pickram, who's a commissioner in Kent County. Mm-hmm. They're our president and vice president. Uh, the two of them were talking about, of course, highway user revenue, sure. local roads and bridges. This is our old our old standard drumbeat. But uh, but it's it's important to start with that because that really is the big, it's the big gorilla mm-hmm. fiscal issue for, for local government. Uh, talking about school construction and how that that shapes up as a big issue this year, uh, having a relatively large jurisdiction that's been building schools like Anne Arundel, mm-hmm. sitting alongside a relatively small, I mean, in, by some measures, Kent County is the smallest county in, in Maryland, um, but both talking about we have needs, this is a priority. I think that's a, that's a good message. Absolutely. Um, I think a couple interesting takeaways. So we're, you know, we're a week or so after the governor formally introduces the budget. So we've seen the budget bill. We've got a chance to leaf through these big budget books. Um, we're starting to see the details in the the, the reconciliation bill, the BRFA mm-hmm. and so forth. And what, what kind of happens over this period of time is you see, all right, here's going to be a flashpoint. This is a little more interesting. The stuff that isn't you're not going to see it in the press release on the day that the budget is released. That's that's all this stuff about, you know, we made this a priority, we funded this, we funded that. Sure. All that's fine. Um, but I think there's a couple things that are that are interesting that, that's set up as as kind of interesting stuff for, for this year ahead. So I don't want to get into this too deeply. We talked about it last week, Natasha and I did, but it, it's important. And um, it's a big deal for us and for county governments is this proposed shift uh, you know, in ESTAT funding, the State Department of Assessments and Taxation, there's a 90% proposal that would it would shift 90% of the cost onto county governments. We don't want to talk about this too deeply, but I know that was discussed yesterday. Sure. And this is, I think, if you're a county elected official, 
and you're accountable to your taxpayers. Mm-hmm. You're, you try and put together your budget and you meet with your cabinet or your department heads and you talk mm-hmm. about let's make sure we're getting the most bang for our buck and let's talk about our health department and let's talk about the way we fund schools and what we're looking for and results in the public schools and then our relationship with our sheriffs and, and the, you know, our parks department and what we're doing with general government and all those sorts of things. But you, you're, respond, you're responding to the needs of your citizens. You have to think about their taxes. You have to think about those fiscal priorities. But it's all about your accountability. Right. Now, you do those things because right. you are accountable to the citizens. Right. And, and so the idea that now is going to land in your lap, you're going to pay 90 cents of, on the dollar – for the costs of an agency where they're not at the table at your cabinet meeting. The, nobody who made those decisions lives in your county, but you're just going to get sent a bill for whatever it is they spent on whatever it is they do. You have no oversight, no input, and, and yeah. you, you know, you, again, you are not in charge of these folks. They're not at the table with you like right. all of your other agencies are. So, yes, big yeah. deal. So, and, and, so I mean – Obviously, counties don't want to have a twenty million dollar hole in our budgets, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's obvious, and and that's the kind of thing that we would resist anyway under any circumstance. But I'll tell you, twenty million bucks of it's just an invoice, and you don't have any say in what you're getting from it or how what, how it became twenty million bucks. Uh, that's just going to sit poorly with any county decision maker, and I don't think you can blame them. Not at all. So, I mean, again, this is a shift, a proposed shift that yeah, a state-managed department asking the, the counties to pick up the bill. Um, not a good look and something that we're obviously going to fight. But let's start talking about some, you know, we, we said earlier that you got into some deeper issues, um, really a deeper dive into the proposed budget and the BRFA. What else came up yesterday in front of budget and taxation? Well, I think one thing that shapes up as a as a probably the, the centerpiece of this year's budget itself. And you know, we, we've talked about the income tax effects and whether those get resolved on a completely separate track or whether they get blended in isn't clear. Mm-hmm. But, but in the governor's proposal right now, the governor probably did the smart thing and just proposed a budget that ignored the fact ignored the potential effects of the of of the these federal income tax changes sure. so so assume everything's normal and that we'll react to the federal changes in a way that washes out that revenue mm-hmm. it's, it's a reasonable place to start well uh, as we've talked about over the last few weeks the governor had to close a gap of about 300 million bucks had to make a variety of decisions and priorities uh, along the way in doing that and this this sounds like it's it's minutia, but it's but it matters. Uh, there's the recommendations of a committee called the Spending Affordability Committee that mm-hmm. said that they recommended let's wipe out the roughly three hundred million dollar structural gap that sits that looms for the FY nineteen budget. So the budget we're debating right now, uh, if you looked at ongoing revenues and ongoing expenses, you know, not one time stuff, not things that are in and out, but stuff that's here to stay. There's a $300 million gap, and spending affordability said, wipe it all out. So do that all this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, Maryland gets a great reputation. We're a AAA state by every bond rating ag- agency. We are maybe the best bet in state government in the entire country. There's a very strong case that we're number one. And one of the reasons is we set rules and we stick to them. 
So, so spending affordability says wipe out $300 million by making structural changes. That's going to happen. Sure. So the administration, the governor, they claim they have alleviated the structural deficit. That's their interpretation. But the General Assembly seems to have a very – no surprise, a very different interpretation. Yeah, and I, and this, this, in this particular case, this isn't – this isn't a partisan difference mm-hmm. with the leaders of the General Assembly differing with with the governor who's of a different political party. Mm-hmm. This is this is a matter of the number crunchers having differences of opinion. I mean, the, the details are maybe too esoteric for this conversation, but it's sort of a question of what counts and what doesn't. Right. And if the legislature is going to follow their own interpretations of what things are should be considered part of this, you know, the 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 structural budget deficit mm-hmm. um, what's ongoing revenues and what's ongoing expenses if you if they follow their own rules then by their judgment the governor's plan is 80 million dollars short so they got to find another 80 million so they either need to make some one-time things permanent or they need to find some other adjustments that can be ongoing which means that is probably the real fight about this budget there's always something on the margin and i think the centerpiece of the budget fight itself this year is probably going to be about what can the legislature do that will that will check the box as a permanent or structural cut or shift or change that that tallies up towards resolving that structural deficit that that sounds a little in the weeds but it matters an awful lot because the governor says i'm done mm-hmm. the legislature says no you're not we've got more work to do and stakeholders like counties are in the middle of this yep. that means there's more coming and we're in the middle with with you know the the proposed staff shit that's structural right yep. so yep. You know, that's it's going to be tough to fend that off when there is this discrepancy about what counts and what doesn't. And the General Assembly is going to be trying to find more. Uh, right. And so to, to ask them to, to knock this SDAT shift out, it's going to be a tough fight, but it's one that we're going to undertake. Mm-hmm. What else in terms of hot button issues that, did, you know, we heard from Vicki Gruber and then you were in front of BNT. What else was on the table in terms of hot, hot button stuff that we're going to see in the months ahead? Well, an interesting facet in in this whole budget plan, and this isn't this isn't a massive issue for this year's budget, I don't think, although I guess it could be, is how are we treating our pension system? Mm. The state has a, has a big pension system for state employees, for teachers, uh, and for judges, and there's some other you know, separate special categories. But you know, th- tens of thousands of employees are in the state pension system. Uh, this is a conventional pension, a what we call a defined benefit pension system. So – uh, you as an employee, after a certain number of years, you are vested, you're entitled to a benefit. It's a formula calculated on your basically your final salaries times a certain multiplier that you earn over years of service right. and it gives you a certainty that there's a certain amount of money you're going to have uh, after after you leave active service. Right. OK, so when you when you have a defined benefit system, what you need to do is pour money into it at a certain rate so that the money can sit, generate interest, you invest the money aggressively and you generate interest and then you you know you do an actuarial calculation to say do we have enough money in the fund today that it can pay for the benefits for next year and beyond. And in this environment almost everybody who's got a defined benefit traditional pension system is less than 100% funded. Mm-hmm. So Maryland's like a lot of public pensions that we're on the way towards a funding level we're comfortable with. Uh, the last year has been a relatively good one. We've moved up 
to about 71% funded status. Uh, that doesn't sound wonderful. It's not the worst. It's not the best. But we're, you know, we have a path toward getting fully funded. So um, we're, we're on the right track. And, yeah. And, and so this is, this is like a, on one hand, there's good news. On the other hand, there's bad news. The, right. the classic economist story. Right. Um, what, where we are now is we're a little ahead of where we thought we'd be, but we're still, Paying extra toward uh, toward the pension system to try and get there. Um, what's interesting in this year's budget plan is the the governor's proposing to not do a fifty million dollar component that the legislature literally just put into the law as they call it a sweeper provision that if there's revenue left over at the end of the year. Basically, your first $50 million should be sent to the pension fund to make that a priority. Let's do some catch-up on our underfunded pension system. And that's pretty bipartisan agreement sure. that having that be a catch-all priority makes sense. If you if you have money in the sock at the end of the year, let's take a piece of it. $50 million sounds like a ton of money, but if you're $17 or $19 million underfunded in your system – Fifty million a year is a piece of the of the puzzle, not the whole puzzle. Seems very prudent, right? To to put it toward the pension system, right? However, in a cash strapped year, mm-hmm. and it's an election year, uh, this year's budget plan says we're not going to do that fifty million dollars. We're going to take a year off from the sweeper provision and instead keep that money in the general fund because we, candidly we need it. Mm-hmm. So, um, is that something that does the general assembly want to say? Let's cut. Let's cut programs or let's do other shifts or other things to find $50 million more to replace that $50 million contribution to the pension system. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Right. I, I don't know whether whether the wherewithal and the will is there to do that. Um, this is a little bit complicated because there's one extra layer of funding in the pension system that the governor did honor, did put in $75 million above sort of the actuarial cost of the system. We have one catch-up piece that's already in place. Mm-hmm. It's the second tier he declined to fund in his budget reconciliation bill. Um, so he's asking the General Assembly for permission to not put that $50 million in. That's part of what makes the budget plan balanced this year. That might not be the easiest thing to do. And so the governor's argument here is, look, we can take a year off. We're on the right path. We need this money in the general fund. Let, let's just stop it for this year, and then we'll get back on track. The General Assembly, it's yet to be seen whether they are going to to accept that recommendation right. or whether or not they're going to have to find that money, you know, and, and cut other programs, which in an election year complicates things. And and, and the, the pension system, uh, our, our state pension system is kind of in a strange spot right now. And we tend to look at our annual reports of the system and we look at the one-year returns and – so there's good news and bad news there as well. Mm-hmm. The state pension system, and we we reported on this on the Mako blog, and this is in this is from the annual report of the, of the pension system. Uh, they had a good year. Uh, they had 10 percent return on investments uh, for the last year. When you when you build an assumption that's that's seven percent plus some fraction is your assume, assumed annual return. When you beat that number and you do ten, that's good. That's mm-hmm. part of how you catch up and you get from seventy to seventy one percent funded and so forth. As you have a gangbusters year, that's that's great. So the good side is we beat our seven percent number. The bad side is in a year when we return ten, most of our peer groups from other states mm-hmm. they were doing eleven and a half and twelve and twelve and a half. So we were. Unfortunately, as usual, we were trailing the pack. We were trailing our peer group. So 
there's there's sort of a, a policy discussion in the background about are we are we managing our pension system ideally? Uh, there's actually going to be legislation about what to do on that front. That's that's on the fringe of this debate. Uh, but what you know what to do with that extra fifty million dollar payment could be a tricky one for this year. Yeah, it, it certainly sets up that way, and it is fascinating to see how this will shape out. Um, again, the General Assembly is going to have to decide what they want to do. And again, being an election year, that is complicated. <laughs> Everything is. Everything is. Okay, so uh, to a lighter topic, let's get into our legislative reception. We had it last night here in Annapolis. Everybody talks about the crab balls. Uh, <laughs> it's here at O'Brien's. Uh, a great mix of local, state officials, bureaucrats from across <laughs> the state. And Michael, I think one of the best things about this reception is that our local officials who not you know might necessarily not be in Annapolis on a regular basis because they're at home you know representing mm-hmm. their constituents they come they meet with legislators from the other end of the state they also talk to people they know of course but in talking to the people from the other side of the state they may think they have nothing in common but when they get together at at these kind of events they realize that they do have a lot in common, and that and that's sort of fascinating to to see and watch that unfold. Yeah, I think I think it's the best. Mm-hmm. Um, I I love seeing that interaction where there's you know a big county legislator talking to a small county commissioner and or you know, a group of people, and they're from all over the state just just chatting. And yeah. if it if it has to be over you know over plates of crab balls mm-hmm. to, you know, to sort of make that come together, I, I think that's it. it's time well spent. So so we get a lot out of that. I think the Mako members. I mean, like like you said, there's there's a lot of people who who don't have time to come and be a member of the Mako Legislative Committee. We ask a lot yep. of for the for the county reps on the, on the Mako Legislative Committee. We we ask them to come and spend basically a half day in Annapolis every Wednesday for like nine weeks in a row during this legislative session. So some people are already committed. They got the hat on. They strap in and they come to come to Annapolis and they're willing to slog through those bills. But you know, we we do a once a year reception like this, and we say, hey, we're going to have a hundred legislators are going to come through. We're going to have agency heads and people from the governor's cabinet. Mm-hmm. So that's an opportunity to plug in and see all these people. Um, you know, lots of people were talking with the comptroller. He yep. came through the event, and a lot of people were talking to him about income tax issues and, and so forth. Um, you know, he's involved with brewery issues and so forth. Sure. So there, there are a lot of things on people's mind, but. We we provide that forum and our folks go to work and that it, it I think it's a it's a it's an extra dimension to Mako's effectiveness. You know, you and I, our colleagues on the Mako policy team, will be out testifying on bills. We'll be talking about amendments. We'll be talking to individual legislators. But that eye to eye that that delegate had with the county commissioner from across the state, and then she remembers mm-hmm. those folks in Western Maryland had a totally different view than my folks back home. And I remember that, that that's going to pay dividends for us. Those perspectives are very important. And, you know, yesterday I was in the Senate Finance Committee and we had some of our local government folks up testifying on a bill and the chairman of the committee said, it's Mako Day. So <laughs> he knows, everyone here in Annapolis knows right. that all the local government officials and, and all those folks were in town. Yep. And it's really great to see that recognized by uh, leaders in the legislature as well. Mm-hmm. And and also, you know, before the reception, you know, we we brought uh, we brought some county electeds over to the Mako office and walked through some of our policy issues. And I think again, it's it's good to get that connection with with a layer beyond just the folks who are here for 
for the legislative committee who have you know, sat on the initiatives committee. They've been through that whole process. But, you know, really good conversation about our working on 911, our working on school construction, and, and we're, we're obviously connecting to things that, that county leaders care about. That'll do it for this week's episode of the Conduit Street Podcast. Tune in each and every week. We will provide a recap of the week in the General Assembly. And please subscribe uh, to wherever you get your podcast. Go ahead and like the podcast. It helps us get our message out uh, more effectively. Until next week, Kevin Canale, Michael Sanderson signing off. Talk to you next week.